everything, and I mean everything, is created twice. And here's what I mean. First, there's the mental creation, where something is created in the mind. Right? It's the idea that gives life to the prototype. It has to begin in the mind before it can ever be actuated with the hands. Now, in the mind, it doesn't physically exist yet, but the vision itself is actually the conception. Then, the physical creation comes next, right? Just like a building flows from a blueprint, everything is first conceived and envisioned before it comes to fruition and is realized, That's the principle behind the second habit in Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Anyone ever heard of that book before? It's like a multi, multi multi-time bestseller. Habit number two says this, to begin with the end in mind. That the, these, these habits of very highly effective people, one of the things they do is before they do anything, they think about the end before they begin. They've kind of thought through the whole process in their mind before they go about doing the thing itself. Listen to what he says. Beginning with the end in mind means to begin each day, task or project with a clear vision of your desired direction and destination and then Continue by flexing your proactive muscles to make things happen. See, it's this discipline to imagine the end, to envision in your mind what you currently can't see, the destination, this vision for the road ahead. And then going about that plan, following down that road. Now, learning this habit would be profitable for everything we do, projects at home and work, or completing long endeavors like school and these long-term projects. This is even a great idea through thinking through your vision and your particular meaningful relationships, whether that be um, relationships with friends and parents, family, spouse, and kids. But this morning, I want us to apply this principle to the overall direction and trajectory of your life. What would happen if we lived with the end in mind? What would happen if we actually took the time to invest in thinking about who we want to be and where we want to be at the very end? And then started taking every step and making every single decision with that desired end in mind. What if today we walked out of here with a vision for living life with the end in mind? how would we do that? Well, first, we'd start thinking about who we want to be and where we want to be at the end of our journey. And our psalm this morning is going to help us get a 30,000 foot view at life. We're high enough above the fray not to be distracted with all the, the details, but to ask, to see the whole picture at the end of the journey, what will really matter in life? If you think about it, the weight of any journey is the, 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 the weight of it, the, how you value it, is by looking at, it's, it's, uh, at that journey from the beginning to the end. If you don't end in a desired place, it kind of makes the journey not really worth it. doesn't mean that the, everything in between isn't important, but if you don't get to the place you want to go, if you don't become the person you want to be, was the journey really worth it? And ultimately, the message of the Bible is that the journey of life ends well when it ends in the presence of God, 
where life and ever-increasing joy is found. That's the message of the Bible, if you wanted to summarize it all together. Psalm 134 is going to teach us that a life lived well and a life well lived is a life that first blesses God, and second, it's a life that's blessed by God. A life that blesses God and a life that is blessed by God. So let's jump in our psalm this morning to see a life that is blessed, the life that blesses God. Look with me at verse one. The psalmist writes, Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. And we've come to our last song in these Psalms of Ascent. We started, if you remember, in the outskirts of Israel, in the wilderness, in enemy territory with a long journey ahead. And with each psalm, we've come closer and closer to that destination, being in the house of God. And now, imagine the pilgrims have arrived, they're in the city, and they're in the temple, the house of the Lord. And the psalm begins with a call to worship. And if you saw, there's no listed reasons, there's no arguments, there's no 10 steps of why you should praise and bless the Lord. Just an invitation and a beckoning. Bless the Lord. If you think about it, after all the songs we've already sung, starting back in Psalm 120, there's no need for more arguments. There's no need for any more reasons. We've addressed them all. We've seen how the Lord is a refuge for the broken. He's a deliverer in times of trouble. He's a warrior for justice. He's the one who keeps us to the end. He's the one who doesn't sleep, which means you and I can sleep at night, trusting him to protect and provide. He's the one who provides mercy for the repentant. To those who seek forgiveness, we find that his forgiveness outlasts our sin. His grace meets us in the pit of our guilt. And we can sing and say with certainty that he has done great things for us. He's the one who gives us hope and joy, peace and comfort, love and acceptance. He's the one who blesses and provides for our needs. For these reasons and more, the time has come for the people of God to enter into his house and give him praise. Now this call to worship is directed at the servants of the Lord. So who are these servants? Well, here in this particular psalm, it's the priests who served in the temple at night. Imagine it's like the third shift, that graveyard shift. The priests who worked through the night. See, Scripture tells us the temple was never left unattended. There was always someone there working for the Lord to to, uh, make sure that the temple was ready in its proper condition ready for the services and the sacrifices that would take place the next day. And they would remain vigilant, and they were, they were to keep watch and guard and protect the temple. And there were priests who served during the day. And, and so it begs the question, who, we don't have a temple today. There's no priests anymore like that. So who are these servants of the Lord today? I'll give you a hint. It's not the pastor's. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 5, gives us an insight here. Look what he says. As you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones and are being built up 
as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, Peter tells us a great transition has taken place. The physical temple has been replaced with what? A spiritual temple built with living stones. You and me. See, the church is now this new temple of God. See, the temple of God was the the place where God's presence dwelt. If you wanted to experience God's presence, you came to the temple. Today, when you want to experience God's presence, you go to the church. And I don't mean a building. I mean a people. These are living stones, not brick and mortar. So you remember how we've been defining the church? The church is the beloved and redeemed people of God who are filled with the presence of God for the purposes of God in the world. The temple was, a, was the place of God's presence. Now, the church is the people of his presence. And in this metaphor, not only are we the temple of God, it says that we're actually the holy priesthood. We are his servants called to lift up our hands and to praise and bless the Lord. So what does that mean? What does it mean to praise the Lord, to bless the Lord? Well, it means actually worshiping and singing and praising the Lord, right? The psalmist says, lift up your hands. Do you know, it's always been common for the people of God to lift up their hands in prayer and praise. Now think about it. What happens when your favorite team scores, right? You lift up your hands, touchdown, right? Anytime a Red Sox hits a home run in our house, we throw up the number one and we run around the house. That's what we do. We're praising. We're excited, right? Hands go up. Arms are lifted up in excitement and praise. It's guttural. You can't even help it. It just happens. When you go to a concert, look around. What do you see people doing? They're worshiping, right? They're giving praise. They're saying, man, this is good, right? You don't even think about it. So some have asked, do I actually have to lift up my hands in church when we sing and praise God? Now let me get real practical here. The simple answer is that God is not ultimately concerned with where your hands are at any really given moment. He's actually concerned about your heart. So you can raise your hands to worship him, but if your heart's not raised, guess what? It's an empty show, and God is not interested in and empty shows, but he is intensely interested in the posture of your heart. How you choose to express that posture is up to you. So standing, kneeling, sitting, jumping, raising hands, whatever, I would say this. Here's a good principle. Worship God in whatever physical ways that you're comfortable with as long as you give your heart to worship him. Worship him with your whole being, heart, mind, soul, and strength. That also means we need to put personal preferences aside. You may be sitting by somebody who doesn't worship the same way you want to worship. And it's not good or bad, it's different. We need to allow each other to be a unified diversity, joined together as one as we are worshiping God. So it doesn't mean that our personal preferences don't matter. They do. But as the body of Christ, we put our personal preferences aside to allow all of us to express our devotion and worship to God. 
Don't be distracting to others, but also don't be so easily offended and distracted as well. Some of you like to move and clap. Some of you don't even clap on beat. It's okay. Others like to sit. Others like to be stoic like a statue. Worship freely and know that ultimately God is most concerned with the posture of your heart. That's the point. But let's go beyond the worship gathering and ask, what does it mean to bless the Lord? Because I think this psalm is getting us just past and to go further than just the singing together corporately. How can humans bless God? That was the question. When I was first reading this psalm, I always get a, a, a scratch a sheet of paper out as I'm just reading it before I even look at it. I'm just going, man, what questions do I have for this? And I thought, how do I bless the Lord? How can, what can I actually give to God, right? How can humans bless God? Well, the word bless just really means to declare that something is good. So when you bless somebody or something, you're, you're pronouncing goodness over that person or that object. So when it comes to God, we can't add anything to God, right? He's perfect. He's complete. We don't give him a blessing in the same way that he gives us a blessing. We're not God, so we can't give him something that isn't already his. The blessing of God by humans is a declaration that God is good. And it's a way to say that because he is good, nothing else comes close. It's a declaration both in our words and in our lives, in word and in deed. John Piper says, blessing God with the mouth, but without the soul, is hypocrisy. Do you feel that? You can bless God with your mouth, but if your heart and your soul and your life looks completely different, it's hypocrisy. If we declare God is good with our words and then deny that very word with our lives, our words become empty and meaningless. It's hypocrisy. So if we take all this together, to bless God is to live a life in word and deed that makes it clear that you believe in God in your head and your heart and with your hands. When all of those things are together, it's a, it's a joyful pronouncement that God is good. It's a life that honors God, focuses on God, and lives for God. It's worshiping God by how you live your life. It's saying with your life that God is my greatest treasure, my only hope, my trust, my hope, my love, my life, my all in all. That's what it means to live a life that blesses God. It's living your life in such a way that when other people look at you, they go, man, everything about their life revolves around God. He must be good. Something's going on there. So we don't add to the divine, eternal, complete, sufficient, holy, and already blessed God, but our lives can express our gratitude that he is all of those things and more. Living a life that blesses God gives witness to the fact that God is actually worth living for, and he actually is worthy of our praise and our worship. See, we offer him praise and love and adoration with our words and with our lives because he deserves it. See, when God blesses us, it's a gift of undeserved mercy and grace. We don't actually deserve it. It's a, it's a gift. It's him overcoming what, what we shouldn't really be getting 
and deciding to be generous and gracious despite of that. But when we bless God, it's because he actually deserves it. He's worthy of our praise for who he is and what he's done. So what does it mean to bless the Lord? It means to say that God is good and to really mean that in the depth of your soul. Really mean it. It's a life that blesses God and a life that blesses God is a life that pleases God. So let's stop here for a moment before we move to our last verse. If our goal this morning is to live our life with the end in mind, we need to be proactive and ask, is my current trajectory headed to that end? If I lived out my life the way I'm living it right now, would I actually get to the end and say, my life was a life that blessed God? Are you willing to be gut level honest with yourself? Not lie to yourself this morning, but actually ask yourself if that's true or not. And have the courage of conviction to go, okay, if it's not headed in that direction, I actually have to change something, right? Right? If you find yourself going in the wrong direction to your destination, does staying on the same course get you there? No. That's like maps 101. Right? You gotta change, you gotta reroute. What would it look like for you to be gut level honest, ask some hard questions, and reroute where you need to? A life that is lived well is a life that blesses God. It's taking Paul's advice in Romans chapter 12, verse one and two. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, here's how you do it, by the renewal of your mind and by testing uh, that you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Remember how we talked about living with the end in mind? It's the renewing of your mind and asking what is good, what is right, what is true, and aiming your life towards that. It's a life that looks at each day and says, God, you are my greatest good. All I have is yours, and I will give it to you for your will, for your purposes, and your glory. A life well-lived is a life that blesses God. And that is a life that God will bless. Let's look at verse three. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Psalm 134 ends with this benediction to those whose life is dedicated and focused on blessing God. And it says, may the Lord bless you. The psalmist is pronouncing blessing over your life for those who are blessing God He's basing it on the fact that he knows God has already promised for that those who live their life to bless him, he will gladly bless them in return. You see, those who live to bless God are not shortchanged. They don't get the short end of the stick. They're not left empty-handed. You're blessed by God. So what does it mean for God to bless us? About five weeks ago, we had a whole sermon on that. It was called Flourishing, and it was looking at Psalm 128, if you want an extended sermon on that, go listen to it. 
We saw that God blesses those who fear him, who walk according to his ways, which means it's those who hold him in the highest regard. It's those who revere him and love him with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Those who've put God at the very center of their life. Everybody lives with something at the center of their life. Everybody has an organizing principle. Everybody has a drive. If you list out your priorities, everybody has Number one, those who have put God at the very center, who prioritize God as number one, that's a person who fears God, walks in his ways, and that's a person who will be blessed by God. And we translated that word blessed or blessing as flourishing because I think it captures in our vernacular what it really means. It means to experience the fulfillment of your deepest desires and longings, to have abundant life meaning, and purpose. It's more than just having circumstances going your way. That's a good thing. But being blessed by God means that you have, you come alive as God pours all of his life into your life. And he opens your eyes to see him for all that he is. And when his life, which is life itself, is animating and driving and fulfilling your life, you will be blessed. You will flourish See, to be blessed by God means to experience his saving grace, his satisfying presence, to know that he is an ever-present help, and it's to know his all-sufficient love. To be blessed by God is nothing short than having God himself. That's the shortest way to say it. To be blessed by God is to have God. See, when God blesses you, he wants to give you what is good. And he looks around and goes, it's me. He gives you himself. He is our greatest good, our greatest treasure. A life blessed by God is the only life worth living and pursuing. Because at the end, you get the greatest treasure. It's like that parable Jesus told about the man who found a field with a treasure in it. And the treasure was so great, he went and sold all that he had to go buy the field. Not for the field, but for the treasure inside the field. That kind of life is the only life that ends with God looking at you, saying, my beloved child, well done, my good and faithful servant. The psalmist reminds us that the God we're talking about is none other than the God who made heaven and earth. He's the one who's made everything. Heaven and earth is just another way to say everything. It's, it covers everything, the physical, the spiritual, the material, the immaterial, all that you can see and all that you can't. He's made it all. Therefore, guess what? There's nothing he can't give you. It's all his. And there's nothing that can hold him back. He's the only one who can actually make good on the promise to bless you. See, when God blesses us, he gives us what we don't have and he transforms us into the people that we could never become on our own. We've got to stop thinking that God is some genie in the bottle who gives us three wishes and then departs, right? That's not who God is. He is God for us, God with us, and God in us. When God blesses us, he gives us the greatest treasure. He gives us himself. And this psalm tells us that when God blesses us, he does it from Zion. Here's what that means. 
in these Psalms, blessing is pictured as coming down from the mountain of Zion to his people. That mountain of Zion is that historic mountain. We've seen it all through the Psalms of Ascent where the temple of God was built. It was the place of his holy presence. And it was this reminder that God desired to live among his people again. What was broken in the garden was going to be repaired. And there was coming a day when even the temple itself would be removed and the need for it would be no more, that God could dwell among his people again. That blessing would come down from Zion. Jesus is that blessing coming down from Zion. Jesus is the servant of the Lord, the one who came down from Zion, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Did you know that he lived the only life that truly blessed God? It was a life lived in perfect submission and obedience to God's law in every single way, in word and in deed. He lived a life that actually blessed God. And on the cross, he took our cursed life so that he could give us his blessed life. This is blessings coming down from Zion. Not only did he model the perfect way to live, he actually lived it for you and for me. That's the life he gives to you. See, when God blesses us, he gives us something that we don't have and transforms us in ways that we could never achieve on our own. He blesses us with the life of his righteousness and he takes on our curse-filled life that's just filled with death and sin. That's how this whole salvation thing works. It's an exchange. He lives for us and he dies for us so that in Christ, blessings come down from Zion so that we live the life we were meant to live. It gives us meaning and direction and purpose and vision for a life that pleases God. As our two sisters were sharing their stories today, you you heard that. Meaning and purpose, significance and life being poured into them. Blessings coming down from Zion. He lives for us and he dies for us so that when we die, we die the death he died, which was a conquering death. A death where the sting has been removed that renders death powerless. See, Jesus transformed death from this cursed end into merely a transition from this life into the next. Before death was a period, full stop, the end. Jesus transformed that death to make it merely a comma. That's the blessing from Zion. That's the blessing that comes with a life that blesses God. That's why Pastor Josh Moody can say, Psalm 134 holds out the hope that we can finish our journey of life with unmitigated, unparalleled, untarnished, complete, and utter blessing. It's the kind of life that led Matthew Henry, that great Bible commentator in the 18th century, to write this this little poem called Weep Not For Me, hoping that anybody who unduly weeped for him would read it and know that his joy had become complete. Listen to what he said. Would you like to know where I am? I am at home in my father's house, in the mansion prepared for me here. I am where I want to be, no longer on the stormy sea, but in God's safe, quiet harbor. My sowing time is done, and I am reaping. My joy is as the joy of the harvest. 
Do you want to know what I'm doing? I see God, not as through a glass darkly, but face to face. I am engaged in that sweet enjoyment of my precious Redeemer. I'm singing hallelujahs to him who sits upon the throne, and I am constantly praising him. Would you like to know what blessed company I keep? It's better than the best on earth. Here are the holy angels and the spirits of just men made perfect. I'm with many of my old acquaintances with whom I worked and prayed and who've come here before me. Lastly, would you like to know how long this will continue? It's a dawn that never fades. After millions and millions of ages, it will be as fresh as it is now. Therefore, weep not for me. He knew that a life that blesses God will ultimately be a life that is blessed by God. And it gave him all the confidence that his journey would end in blessing. And guess what, friends and family? We can live with that kind of confidence today too. Let's be a people marked by, the, by blessing God, a life that prioritizes God above all else because you've come to see that he's your greatest treasure. And if you right now do not have the faith to believe that that's true, ask him. He's the maker of heaven and earth. The one who moved heaven and earth to prepare the way for you. The one who spoke life into existence, spoke from nothing, all that is, can speak a gift of faith in your heart this very morning. He will give you the faith to believe And by his grace, you can live a life that blesses God, which is a life that in the end will be blessed by God. Receive these words of blessing from Numbers chapter 6. Seven Mile Road, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and may he be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.